Adela Marcy Unplugged. I'm your host of the most, as always, Adela Marcy. And today on season five, as we power through, we got the main man, Steve Glaveski, in uh, on the show today. Basically, this guy wrote a book. I think it was like early March 2019. I think the audiobook was released. Um, employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. Uh, he actually was introduced uh, to me through Ajit uh, who we've had previously on the show as well. You guys can go check out uh, that episode. Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Adel. Thanks, man. I'm glad that you that we managed to arrange this because uh, I know we basically picked about a month ago to get on the show. And I'm glad that you know all things worked out and aligned, and we basically got to speak today. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And um, you know, it doesn't matter which corner of the globes we find ourselves in. It's 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 a awesome time and we can connect in such a manner. I mean, just yesterday I was chatting with someone from Canada. Today I'm chatting with someone from London. You know, tomorrow I've got a podcast with someone from Hong Kong, and it's just a great time where, you know, those barriers to collaboration and communication have come right down. So you can learn from people all around the world, which is an exciting um place to be. Oh, agreed. It's like one of the best things ever. Um, and it's incredible to believe that we would not actually find certain talents if we didn't have the ability to like network like this. Mm. Um, and it's powerful. But one thing I did want to just do before we got started on the show was give a quick shout out to the show sponsors, which are of course steveglaveski.com. That's G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I.com. Uh, go check it out and also go check out his book, Employee to Entrepreneur. Um, also, the show is sponsored by StorySellingEmails.com. Go there, learn how to write, or well, I don't say learn, understand how to write your own email sequences and your sales copy so they can be just basically pulling uh, profit for you while actually building a great relationship with um, your audience. And I want to touch upon that right away because something I do know about you, Stephen, uh, you told me particularly was that your book went through the idea of what an entrepreneur needs to be today, which is be very, very complete, mm-hmm. which they have to have an understanding of technology, psychology, philosophy, economics, mindset, mindfulness, productivity, fitness, spirituality, and just <laughs> having emotional management because you said it best, and I agree to everyone, uh, agree with everyone that does say this. You can't be the entrepreneur of the 70s and the 80s or even the 90s where you're kind of like doing tons of drugs getting blasted every again drunk every night um and really not understanding how to look after yourself and just running around running amok and making a ton of money whereas today you that that vision of an entrepreneur doesn't come anymore the vision of an entrepreneur is more towards someone that's a little bit more refined that understands the inner workings of their mind and is trying to become a better person overall yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, that's not only the vision of the entrepreneur nowadays, I think that's the vision of the human being. I think everybody's starting to become, well, not everybody, I wish everybody was, but a lot more people are starting to become a lot more enlightened when it comes to the emotional regulation more than anything else. Um, you know, the we hear a lot of tales of entrepreneurs who, you know, whether they're pushing all sorts of stimulants to work long hours or whether they're being you know narcissistic and just yelling orders at their team and firing people left right and center like that still happens in in some degrees even today but i think you'll find that some of the more um, progressive organizations uh, like your base camps of the world headed up by jason freed and people like that they put people first and in order to put people first you need to have a certain sense of self-awareness and you also in order to 
operate uh, from a place of calm, of reason, uh, you need to take care of yourself. You need to get your sleep. You need to, you know, take care of your body, eat well. Otherwise, you just become irritable. And, um, you know, I found that through my own conversations on my podcast, where I spoke with the guy with guys like um Brad Feld, you know, one of the world's biggest venture capitalists. Um, spoke with guys like uh, Rand Fishkin, who founded the company Moz, one of the biggest um SaaS companies on the internet. Now. What they found was that they did try to play that game where they were up every morning, you know, 5 a.m., alarm clock, you know, get five hours sleep, hustle, 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 work 12 hours a day. And ultimately, it left them depressed. And, you know, when you're depressed, you're no good to yourself, you're no good to anybody, and you're definitely no good when it comes to building a team and working with potentially 10, 20, 50, 100 people. Um, so you need to take care of yourself first before you can go out there and solve the problems of the world. As, um, as uh, what's his name, Jordan Peterson likes to say, you know, make your room first. So take care of yourself first, and then you can go out there, solve problems, and create value. I agree. I'm so glad that you actually referred to Dr. Peterson because I love that guy's work. 12 Rules of Life is definitely one of my yeah. favorite books. Um, and it's so true. Uh, it's being able to look after yourself because what we're now doing more of than anything else is understanding that we set examples for people around us. And mm -hmm. that if you start working on yourself, it's not selfish because when you start working on yourself truly and wholly, you start kind of raising the, um, I won't say the vibration, but just raising the, what's it called? The expectation of everyone mm. else and everyone else starts rising to your, they, they start rising to your, to your, to your heat. They, they rise to your level versus by playing small and keeping small, you're actually doing, you're not helping anyone, especially. Yourself. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a key point. I mean, if you are a entrepreneur leading an organization, leadership is not what you say. Leadership is essentially what you do. It's the examples you set. Um, that's what people will see. People model the behavior they observe, and that's essentially what they'll do. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of formative experiences in our business where opportunities arose where I could implant certain behaviors or cultures in the team. For example, um, about three years ago, I mean, we work in the corporate innovation consulting space and we got our first big client after about a year and a half of hustling and we proceeded to royally screw it up. <laughs> now, <laughs> at this point, I could have said, well, sorry, I guess we're just gonna, not going to work with you again. But I sat the team down and I said, okay, well, let's walk through the entire customer journey from that very first business development meeting right through to the last piece of work we delivered for them. What could we have done better? And so it was an objective, open, honest conversation. We came up with about 20 bullet points of things we could have done better. And then I presented these bullet points back to the um, client and said, okay, here's what we could have done better. We're sorry, but here's another list of things we're going to do to resolve this and make it even better than what we originally promised. And they agreed to that. We delivered that. They're still a client to this day. Um, and that whole experience, I think, instilled uh, – a mindset of extreme ownership, as Jocko Willink likes to say in the team, whereby if something goes wrong, we don't make an excuse. We don't just say sorry, but we find a solution. And I think that's a, an example of our leadership by example. Um, rather than just telling people, fix it, it's like it's being involved in that process. And then people are more likely to buy in as well. Agreed. Agreed. And it's, it is taking full ownership of what's going on and actually presenting a solution that really endears you to clients, which is absolutely brilliant and so on right so one of my favorite questions that i like to really ask or at least comes up in these kinds of conversations i really enjoy when it comes down to actually creating the productivity for yourself what advice do you give to people because i've seen everything from we've seen the whole 
sleep five hours, hustle, hustle, hustle to you should be sleeping a lot longer. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you should be working between these hours and these hours or it, there is, in my opinion, there is no one size fits all. Yeah. Rather, what, what overall advice would you give to someone that is looking to enhance their productivity? Sure. So I think the word should is an interesting one. It's always a bit of a trigger word. Yeah. Uh, any universal, whether it's should or all X's or Y, I always kind of step back and think, well, there's never anything that's so black and white. There's always a Venn diagram. There's always gray areas. There's always outliers and people that are, you know, two standard deviations from the mean. So just putting putting that one out there first and foremost. But um, I recently wrote an article uh, for, having said all that, I recently wrote an article for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. Now, the title is a bit clickbaity, but it's more about the fact that you can do a lot more in less time if you apply yourself uh, in a deliberate manner. So when people ask me this question, I just refer to a really simple framework that I put together called P-Coats. Um, it's a visual mnemonic based on the winter jacket. Uh, P stands for prioritize. So applying things like the 80-20 principle to focus on the key value adding tasks or key value adding marketing channels, sales channels, customers, and so on. Uh, C in P-Coats was a cut. So what are those things that you're spending your time on that just aren't adding value, but you keep doing them because you've always done them? Get rid of those. Uh, That's an opportunity cost there that you're missing out on where you could be doing something that's more valuable. Uh, O in P-Codes was for outsource. So nowadays, I mean, we can outsource anything that's process-oriented, anything that's rudimentary offshore for about one-fifth to one-tenth of the price we'd pay someone in, say, a Western economy. Now, that's a great way to get that stuff off your plate focus on the things that are aligned with your strengths, with your natural inclinations. And that therefore, not only do you get more done, but you're also a lot more fulfilled and energetic come the end of the day because you're doing the kind of work that you love that creates results and that feeds back into your motivation loop. Um, A in PCOS also automate. Again, nowadays, every couple of weeks, there's new tools coming out to help you automate absolutely every aspect of your business, whether it's sales, marketing, customer service, and so on. Um, And the more you do that, again, the more you can focus on the tasks actually require your cognitive uh, focus, if if you will. Um, T in PCOTS was for test. So most people, when they waste their time, it's because they're jumping to conclusions or because they're falling in paralysis analysis. Um, and now if you've got key metrics in place whereby you're monitoring uh, these metrics, you can determine when you need to change things rather than just blindly keep moving forward and, and, and your business suffers as a result. And then S&P codes was something you alluded to, and this is start your engines. And that could be things like getting you know seven to eight hours sleep a night it could be things like getting your exercise and nutrition right it could be things like working on the toughest thing first um turning off all your notifications doing away with interruptions maybe for the first hour or two of the day so you can just focus on those hardest things first right so there's a lot of things people can do in this space but if they apply just one of the things that i've mentioned um which is really just scratching the surface of what you can do in this space you can see a transformational change um in how much more productive and, and effective you are with your work. Agreed. I mean, that's very, very powerful. And there's something you just touched upon there when you were speaking that I was like, ooh, I want to ask him specifically when he gets there. And mm-hmm. that is uh, the idea of outsourcing. And that is, without being boring about it in the sense of like, okay, you can go on these websites to find people. How do you find the dele- How do you find the tasks to delegate? Because I know some people um, really enjoy doing certain tasks like me, myself, I love writing my own advertising. I love writing other people's advertising. That is something Mm -hmm. I don't like outsourcing, but how do you find the actual tasks that need to be outsourced? Not just the admin work, but the 
write process work? Like, for instance, if you don't like content writing, how do you know that is the time to outsource? Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of things. Um, one would be to nail the process first, uh, whether it is content writing or something else, like what is the voice of the organization, what's the message that you want to be putting out into the market. And once you have a good feel for that, once you've been doing it for a while, you're seeing engagement with the content, people are sharing it and so on, then you may be in a, in a position whereby you may be able to outsource it. But the other thing to consider is also whether or not content writing, in this case, aligns with your, uh, you know, it gives you energy, it aligns with your natural inclinations and strengths, it's something you enjoy, and it's something that you can do better than most people. Um, and if it is a key part of your business in terms of it creates a lot of inbound traffic um, and, and, and leads, then perhaps you want to keep that on your plate. Now, if it's something whereby you've created the process, it's working okay, but you don't really enjoy it, um, and perhaps there's other people out there that are better at it than you, and you can create more value in other aspects of your business. Like there is an opportunity cost, like you should be spending your time meeting uh, prospects rather than writing content, then you want to outsource that. So I'd say once you have a good view of all the different tasks that take place in your business, just reflect on, is this something that aligns with my strengths? Do I enjoy it? other people that are better at it than me? And is there an opportunity cost that I'm paying here because I should be spending my time on something else where I am a lot more valuable to the business? Ooh, that's actually quite excellent considering that's something I really need to sit down and do, especially going through my processes for how I actually create my own content pieces and so on. And actually it takes so much weight off my plate as well, especially the admin yeah. stuff. God, I hate yeah. doing the admin stuff. <laughs> um, Tell me about it, man. I don't think there's that many people like, yes, I love admin stuff. If I meet any i think i'm just almost immediate like you're my best friend we are <laughs> we are going to be working together on something well it, it's funny though i think some people may not love admin stuff but they'll do it because it's mind-numbing and easy and it takes them away from actually having to do the the really hard stuff yeah. um so you know our brains sometimes trick us into thinking that the lowest hanging fruit is the ripest and that again coming back to the productivity stuff that can really be your undoing if you just do the easy thing first agreed Agreed. I like to, uh, my usual day-to-day, -day, and this is actually segueing to a really good question I just thought of as well. Um, so like the way that I have my day-to-day -day set up is I usually like set off one or two things I know I'll do every single day. Mm -hmm. And once I cross them off, that actually builds like a pillar of momentum for me. Like for instance, mm -hmm. it's do jujitsu and then train, like, you know, go lift weights and do some cardio work. I have that blocked out from 6 a.m. till 12 p.m. Um, that's my training time. I have that time to basically work out and it's such a simple task for me because it's so enjoyable that by mm -hmm. the time i know that it's time for me to write because those are my productive hours i just hit i just hit the computer i get ready to go and bam like my mind is ready to go for my day i know what i'm doing on that day and i can just go through everything yeah um, man those so like, small wins add up yeah it's like not finding the easy stuff to do it's find the small wins to go with now the question mm -hmm. this is segueing to was how does someone like you actually what does your day-to-day -day look like? Like, what does that personally for you look like where you actually encapsulate your uh, mindfulness in the morning, your productivity, mm -hmm. your fitness, uh, that kind of thing? What is it that you do that makes yeah. you you? That's a yeah, first sure. so, question on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like answering it, so I'm glad you asked it. So um, I don't have a six-hour workout window in the morning. I wish I did. That sounds pretty awesome, Adil. But um, one thing I would say is, uh, you know, I, I usually 
I used to wake up at 5 a.m., back to what I was saying, and then I found myself feeling irritable uh, more often than not because I was getting about six hours sleep a night. So I was one of these entrepreneurs that would beat his chest and get six hours sleep a night and think that I was invincible and you know praise the Bon Jovi song, they'll sleep when I'm dead and whatnot. But uh, ultimately, if you take that philosophy, um, a lot of the sleep research suggests that you'll be dead a lot sooner than you think. Uh, yeah. So I, I nowadays try to get... Uh, ideally eight, but it's more often somewhere between seven and eight hours sleep. So I'm up at six and unless I'm, I've got an early morning podcast, I'm in the gym first thing for about 40 to 45 minutes. And it's usually high intensity functional training. Um, after that I'd be meditating for about 10 minutes and I'd just be reflecting on things like, um, gratitude, um, compassion for other people, uh, presence, but also responsiveness. I think that's a big one. I try to meditate on every day and set myself up to be uh, deliberately responsive to external stimuli uh, throughout my day rather than involuntarily uh, reactive. Because as an entrepreneur, as a human being, you can't afford to go through life at the whim of every single thing that happens to you. You need to be in control and choose how you want to interpret and respond to things. So I meditate on those things every morning. And then I have a cold shower, which you know, serves a number of purposes, both from an immunity perspective, but also from a state change perspective, kind of just, you know, if the gym didn't wake me up, then the cold shower definitely will, and I'll be ready to ready to rock and roll. And uh, I mean, after that, it's, it's very much a matter of, you know, fasting for about 14 to 16 hours a day. So that way I find that the first few hours of my day, I usually hit the desk by about nine. Um, I'm very clear, um, and I don't eat until about 11 a.m. to 12 a.m., uh, 12 p.m. rather. Um, and by doing that and focusing on the toughest things first, like, like yourself, I try to prioritize my to-do list the day before and I focus on the top two to three things of the day that are really going to move the needle of my business. Everything else can fall by the wayside. I'll carve out time in my calendar so I don't have interruptions, I don't have meetings. I might lock myself in a room somewhere or work from home or from a cafe so no one interrupts me. I won't have notifications on my phone and I'll just focus on getting those things done and I'll avoid the lure of you know, just checking email every five minutes or um, jumping on LinkedIn or whatever it is because, you know, your average executive checks email 72 times a day what? and 72 times a day and, yeah. and the, the it's crazy. And if you think about the fact that it takes you about 23 minutes on average to get back into the state of flow where we are, you know, five times more productive, we're totally in the zone. If I'm checking email every 70, 72 times a day, that's once every six minutes in a typical eight-hour workday, which means I am spending no time in flow. I'm spending no time doing my best work. So email is something I check two to three times a day tops. Um, so that's kind of like an insight into my day. But then there's the other side of the day, which is warming down, powering down. And you know, in order to get myself in a state where I can get those eight hours sleep, setting the room temperature to about 18 degrees because anything 20 and above uh, becomes a little bit too warm for the human body, particularly particularly if you're a male. Uh, brain dumping, so journaling, what was I grateful for today? What did I learn? What could I have done better? I think is a really important question to reflect on because the more you find yourself writing down the same thing <laughs> day after day, it's like, okay, something needs to change. And then the next time that actually happens, throughout your day, you're more likely to be intentional about it and not make that same mistake. Um, and then by getting all of those thoughts down on paper, it also helps you kind of clear your mind, um, which makes it much easier to fall asleep. And uh, the last thing I would say there is a cold shower before bed or a hot shower before bed. Both of them serve the purpose of um, 
cooling your body down. So if you have a hot shower or if you have a sauna before bed, as your body cools itself down, it makes it much easier uh, to fall asleep. Um, and, and so if you can get that you know, seven to eight hour sleep cycle a night, um, not only is it good for rest, but it helps you um, solidify uh, new neural pathways in terms of things that you've learned. So it helps with memory. It helps with mood regulation. The last two hours of an eight-hour sleep cycle are fundamental in mood regulation, um, going back to the irritability I talked about earlier. And it also helps with creativity, which is why a lot of people like Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn um, will say things like, if I have a problem, I'll sleep on it, and then I'll wake up, and more often than not, I have an inkling of a solution of some kind. So um, it helps connect those uh, disparate uh, neural pathways and, and learnings that we have made the day before. That is actually very, very powerful, and it's kind of funny because I have this image. Sometimes I get images whenever I speak to people. Of I can just imagine you kind of having like a very kind of almost relaxed session as you come down throughout the day where it's just very very relaxed and very and, and it sounds amazing i'm actually going to start using that hot shower thing a little bit more because i do like having a warm shower before i go to bed um, mm -hmm. but i usually like really cool my like i dry myself off all the way and then i get to sleep and then i warm up again so having the room temperature under 20 would be great um mm. But there was something that you did touch upon that I wanted to question a little mm -hmm. bit further because I don't do this. And that is the eight hour sleep thing. Personally, I know people say that you need eight hours or, you know, seven to eight. I don't know why, but if I go over six hours, my brain is just terrible. Like if I go under four, I'm terrible. It's basically like six, five and six is like my happy spot where I'm most productive, most happy and get almost everything I need done. Um, but it's it's crazy because all the sleep science tells me that I need to sleep more. But if I sleep more, I feel terrible. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not a sleep doctor, so I don't know why that is. And like I was saying earlier, you know, the caveat I gave, there are people outliers. that operate different. Uh, yeah, exactly. Outliers, you know, different sides of the spectrum, all that sort of stuff. Uh, one or two standard deviations from the mean. And there are people out there who can operate well on five to six hours sleep a night um, without showing signs of cognitive decline or early onset of, you know, Alzheimer's and things like that, which is a big, um, you know, red flag when it comes to getting less sleep. And um, the thing is, and I'm not sure if this applies to you, it doesn't sound like it does, but a lot of people, whether it's sleep, whether it's not eating well, whether it's being, you know, overweight, we don't know that we're underslept if we're underslept. Um, we don't know how much better we could feel if we did eat well. We don't know how much better we would feel if we did lose those extra kilos, you know. that. So sometimes we can normalize things um, and we just don't know what the alternative is. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with yourself, but I, I've found in my case, and this was very much driven by reading um, Matt Walker's book, Why We Sleep. It's probably, <laughs> as far as books go, it's, I'd give it the number one title as far as scaring the hell out of me is concerned. And uh, <laughs> it just forced me to make a fundamental change in my life because um, I did find that, like I said, I was more irritable before, whereas now I'm a lot calmer and clearer and, and, and everything else. So it's definitely had a profound impact on my life getting those eight hours sleep. And even seven hours sleep a night for a week, uh, what uh, Matt Walker says in that book is that's equivalent. The equivalent damage to your body is pulling an all-nighter. Um, essentially once a week. So it's just something to bear in mind for people. But again, it's about trying things and figuring out what really works for you. But then if you need to get into the nitty gritty of the science, perhaps go and get some tests done and see, you know, what do those markers suggest? You might feel like you're okay. You might feel productive, but maybe you're actually causing some damage to your body and it's good to pick that up earlier rather than later. Yeah. 
That actually is quite true. And would be good to actually have that looked at just simply because it would help out quite a bit. Um, so as far as it goes to like environment around you, like keeping that around you, how much does that affect your mindfulness in its own just by being in the wrong environment, for instance? Like if you're in a noisy mm. place, is that would you class that would be quite disruptive for someone that is trying to gain, gain the productivity and something else that you said? Actually, yeah, I'll ask look, the other thing later. I'll ask the other mm-hmm. thing in a moment. Okay. Um, well, it really depends what what I'm doing. Uh, sometimes being in a noisy place, as long as I can't really – as long as it's noise and not conversations, if I can make out someone's conversation, then it's not good for, pro- for, for, for productivity as far as I'm concerned because it doesn't help me focus. But if it's just like background noise, like it's a really busy cafe and I can't really make out any conversations, that actually helps in some, some regard. And I was reading – um, the book, uh, leaders by Stanley McChrystal and in it, he profiles, uh, Albert Einstein. Now Einstein could be at a dinner party, a cocktail party or something like that. And he would just go off and sit down on a couch. The place would be packed with people and he'd just, you know, meditate on a problem like general relativity or something. And he would get a lot of work done that way. So, um, you know, there's no clear cut way about this. I mean, a lot of the research that's coming out now about open plan offices says that open plan offices actually are bad for productivity because people are constantly getting tapped on the shoulder. There's so much noise and chaos. People can't focus. And now they're setting up all these, you know, little private offices around the perimeter of a lot of corporate buildings. So people can go off and work in solitude. So it depends on the, on the person. Um, but I find that if I'm working on say a blog post or content creation or something like that, I prefer to just have my headphones in. If it is a busy space, that's fine. I'll put some headphones in and listen to something like um, binaural beats, like Brain FM, mm-hmm. uh, which Ooh, I wow. find is, yeah, it's fantastic. It's a really potent tool to help you get into flow very quickly. So, yeah, it, it's a horses for courses thing, I think, when it comes to environment, in, in my case anyway. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Like myself, very similar to you, if I can't make out an, a, a conversation – I'm good. It's the reason why I can't listen to like actual music when I'm working. I can only listen to instrumental mm. music or classical because one of the things I love I love to do is I find on Spotify the what's it called there's a playlist on there called Music for When You're Writing, mm-hmm. and it's all instrumental work like classical, contemporary, just all instrumental. And like this is calming and good. But I get a little bit weird because I like to actually combine the two together. Like I'll go to all three, sorry. I'd go to a cafe, put on Brain FM and have like an <laughs> instrumental over it. So it just kind of all works in unison. My brain's like, I'm happy awesome. we can work now. Um, the other question I had for you that you actually mentioned a couple of minutes ago was again was um, about working for 25 minutes to actually hit flow. Was that something that our good old friend Steve Kotler came up with or like figured out was that just actually what it takes time for you personally to actually get into that space of flow uh no that was um an article well some research that came out which i can bring up where they found that it takes on average 23 minutes for someone to get back into flow so it wasn't stephen kotler it was in fact an article that came from lifehacker uh mm-hmm. which uh the article was called how long it takes to get back on track after a distraction and within this article, it was actually the University of California, Irvine, who t- conducted this study. Um, so yeah, uh, it's some, cool. it's, it's, it, it is powerful. It's very real. And 
if you just think about how often people are interrupted in an open plan office, whether it's notifications popping up on their screen, on their phone, whether they're checking email regularly, whether they get it, whether they're getting sucked into the lure of checking Facebook and Instagram every 10 minutes because they're looking for that little dopamine hit, like all these things add up and can force us to get to the end of the day. And we'll think we were busy all day, we were doing stuff all day, we feel exhausted, but we have very little to show for it. So yeah, we yeah. need to be super intentional about that stuff. Yeah, because I've actually, I noticed earlier today, I've literally sat down before and um, I, I'm slightly embarrassed to say this, but I've actually sat down before and I think I've opened four separate tabs of Facebook and YouTube before. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Yeah. You only need one if that. It's not even that important. What are you doing? I'm yeah. Like, I've, I've, it's so habitually like ingrained in my brain. Man, it's, I've been trying to um, cut down my own uh, social media and, and digital use in general. And um, what I've found is it, I've been running this experiment for a few weeks where I've set my daily limit to 20 minutes. So using Apple's um, screen time app. Um, so 20 minutes on social media on my phone and that's it. I'm done. So if it's say a Tuesday evening and it's 8 p.m. and normally I'd be inclined to maybe reach for my phone and see what's happening in, in the interwebs, now my little um, – Hourglass pops up, says, hey, you're at your limit. And what it actually forces you to do is it forces you to then, rather than distract yourself with pointless, mindless scrolling, it forces you to replace that with something um, worthwhile, whether it's reading a book, whether it's calling a friend, whether it's going out to dinner, whether it's it's going for an evening walk, whether it's listening to a podcast, whatever it is, it forces you to seek out alternatives rather than just feed your brain, you know, tiny dopamine hits and have nothing to show for it come 10 p.m. You're like, what did I do for the last two hours? And, you know, if you look at your phone for four hours a day, that's um eight hours, that's eight weeks a year staring at your little device. And most of that time is probably not really creating any value for you. In fact, it's probably coming at a massive opportunity cost where you could be doing so many more meaningful things. Agreed. Like, just so, so very true. And again, I'm glad that you're actually saying this because I know a lot of people be, uh, hearing this will actually be like, wait, I don't do that that often. I, I, the amount of times I've heard people say they've got like 19 to 56 tabs open on their <laughs> laptop, I'm like, how? I, at most, I have maybe nine, at most. But even then, I'm like, that's a bit much for me. It's making me claustrophobic. I need to shut some of these down. Um, yeah. But it's, it's getting that discipline, really, because that's something that, uh, well, I'd say something you've inspired me to do right now while I listen to you and talking to you right now is I actually want to set myself a 30-day challenge. Um, and that is the amount of time that I actually spend on social mm -hmm. media and more particularly spend distracting myself from working. So I want to just basically sit in front of my computer, just work for about 25 minutes and see what happens. Um, so thank you for that. I do appreciate it. No problem. And one of my, let's see, one of my favorite questions to always ask about this. And I think with you, we're going to have to extend this number because you've already given us quite a few books. I want to uh, extend this number for you. So I'd say... What would you say would be the eight most influential <laughs> business books or nonfiction books for you? And here's the caveat. Two, and add from the eight, so you have eight of those books, and you have two more books or movies that are fictional, or the movies can be nonfictional as well if you want. Like, you know, they can base, be based on a, a true life story. Um, would you say would, that you, they've influenced you, or at least you would recommend for other people to go read? Okay, so eight books... Okay, so I'll start with eight books. <laughs> um, the 4-Hour Workweek, uh, The Lean Startup, Marcus Aurelius's book, uh, Meditations, um, Seneca's Letters from a Stoic, 
Behave by Robert Sapolsky, which is about this neuroscience of how we think and what makes a human being. Um, Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the eighth book would... I read voraciously, but I'm tr- struggling to think of what I would actually put into that eighth position. And if I was, if you were to ask me this question again tomorrow at all, I'd probably say something totally different. Yeah. But let's just go. <laughs> let's just go with um, "Good to Great" by Jim Collins. Only because it was one of the first business books I read. But having said that, if you look at a lot of the companies that were profiled in "Good to Great," many of them have fallen off the S and P 500. So it's, it says a lot about. <laughs> says a lot about uh, post addicting. And, and seeing things after the fact, like that hindsight bias we fall into, we're like, okay, these companies did really well, or they're doing really well right now. Let's see what makes them great. Let's, 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 what, what narrative can we tell about these companies and their leadership? And um, I think if for nothing else, for no other reason, I put that book in there because it just forces me to challenge things a lot more. So keeping strong opinions and uh, but holding them loosely and weakly, as uh, Mark Andreessen likes to say. And it doesn't matter if it's a, a scientific research paper or if you read it in a book or, or whatever. I mean, people can always fall into the narrative fallacy. They can always fall into the trap of confirmation bias. So maybe they're deliberately trying to do that. They're de- deliberately trying to infer a story and a formula around something that happened. So I think it's always worthwhile um, taking that sort of mindset with you because it does force you as an entrepreneur to just challenge uh, assumptions, challenge what people say, challenge what people think and get to what's more true than just what people say. Um, so there's eight books that I rattled off the top of my head. But um, I'm very impressed by, by the way, at the speed. I was like, damn, this guy's got a list. Usually people give me like a couple of minutes to be like, let me think about this. Yeah, I didn't want to be umming and ahhing. I think that would bore your audience. I was like, how can I rattle these off as quickly as possible? <laughs> um, and then there was uh, two two films, was it? Two films or fiction books. Okay. So maybe I'll go with fiction books. Um, the Odyssey by Homer. Um, mm-hmm. I love that book because I think it, it just tells the story of persistence and perseverance. You know, Odysseus basically – went off to fight in the Trojan Wars for 10 years alongside, you know, Achilles. And then after the war, he took him a further 10 years to find his way home to his native Ithaca, um, uh, during which time his, his ship was wrecked, his crew was eaten by a giant cyclops, you know, he was enslaved by a nymphomaniac and eventually made it back home only to find that um, there were numerous suitors fighting for his hands, wife in marriage. Um, his wife didn't recognize him because 20 years away had taken the toll on Odysseus. And he had to basically fight them off and convince his wife that he was who he was. But he eventually got there in the end. So it was a, a tale of persistence, perseverance. And I think entrepreneurship is very much like that. It's not about just how smart you are, how t- technically gifted you are. But unless you're able or capable of persisting through all the inevitable hardship and setbacks that entrepreneurship presents, you're more likely than not going to fail. Um, and you, you, there's going to be people out there who maybe aren't as smart as you, but they persist and they'll they'll break through when you've given up. So that's one reason why I really love that book. And another one would be um, Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. And the reason I say that is, and also spoiler alerts for anyone who hasn't read these books, um, uh, would be the key takeaway for me from that book is that Santiago goes on this journey across the desert in search of treasure, 
But ultimately, he learns that the treasure was as was at his feet the whole time. But he had to go on that journey to learn that. And that's a lot like entrepreneurship as well. Like you want to, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to come up with the best idea in the world. But it doesn't work that way. You know, most ideas start off, they're crap, and they have to go through countless iterations and evolutions to become something that people actually want to buy. Um, and, and you may go on a journey and new opportunities will present themselves and you might come up with new learnings that would never have presented themselves if you just sat inside your you know, study pontificating all day about what this big breakthrough idea will be. So you know, trust the journey and also persist, I think are the two key lessons from those two uh, fiction books. See, I love the fact that you actually said The Alchemist. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I have to read it every year. And the time mm -hmm. I usually do so is because uh, my birthday is always lovely for this. It, it's on September 30th. So mm -hmm. I usually have it set as uh, October 1st to December 31st is basically my uh, quarter one. In in my mind, that's like quarter one and then quarter two. Like, so by the time we right. reach quarter four, it's actually my birthday again. Um, <laughs> and one of the first things I do for my quote unquote personal new year, which is October 1st, is read The Alchemist. Like through and through, go it again. Remember the lessons and go for it again because it's. Well, what, what is it about the alchemist that's so appealing to you? Honestly, it's just more or less the the stories there reaffirms a lot of things for me. But particularly, I always seem to find a new lesson, mm. like for me to look at. For instance, this year's lesson for me was um, understanding self belief, like really understanding myself and kind of going, "Hey, you spend a lot of time working and honing your craft, and you know you're good at what you do." All you have to now do is believe and look at the omens around you. Don't don't ignore them and don't talk yourself out of them. Mm -hmm. So particularly as people listening to this, by the time the show is actually aired and live, um, I would have actually been moved to my new place. And the entire way that this even came up was completely in the sense of I've been talking about it for months, uh, but could never have but never have found anything that really was like, yeah, I want to I want to move home. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden. I found a place that was only marginally more expensive than my place, uh, like think $35 more expensive. And it's about two and a half times bigger than the place I live in. And That's it's awesome. Not, it's not even far from my home. So it's like, wow. So I read that, as, I, I saw that and I went, okay, if I go there and I feel this, I read kind of like felt into it, felt how positive I felt towards it. And things have just been falling into place with it. And it's kind of, it, it, it's really cool. Like, I really appreciate it, enjoy it. And it's really annoying. Well, not annoying me, but I feel like in my mind, uh, I can hear it chatter against itself going, dude, I know how excited you are, but seriously, you got to like enough of the apartment thing. But for <laughs> me, the way I look at that is like, that's true excitement for me. Because mm -hmm. unless I'm really excited about something, I won't shut up about it. <laughs> like, I'll just keep going on about it until it's like, all right, it's real. It's done. Let's enjoy this and remember the yeah. gratitude of what you feel um, yeah so that, i think that's... there's a key key takeaway as well in what you said there at all just around um excitement so not only if it's excitement around uh finding an apartment but you've got to be excited about the work that you do and if you're excited about it you then show up every single day and you really give it your best shot but if you're kind of half-hearted about it if you're half-hearted about the underlying purpose of the business the the nature of the work then you're going to give up much earlier in the piece. So, you know, finding work that really excites you, I mean, as, as cliche as that might sound, as simple as that might sound, you know, the, there's even research on this that shows if you're doing something, if you're trying to learn something that really excites you, you, you learn in about half the time because you just, you really want to learn. Like right now I'm trying to learn how to surf and, you know, as an Australian, you'd think I'd already know by the age of 35, but I grew up about an hour from any surf beaches. 
So, but I'm loving it. I'm loving the the little bit better I get every single time, and I'm, and that kind of feeds back into into that motivation. And if something excites me, like I'm confident that by the end of this year I'll be you know riding barrels and riding the green water. But if it wasn't something that really appealed to me, I would be, make every excuse under the sun to not make that one hour drive down to the surf beach and, and invest a couple of hours on the weekend learning. Um, so yeah, you really need to be excited by what you're doing if you want to be the best in the world at it and if you want it to be your you know, lifelong career. Agreed. Could not agree more. And it's so powerful, especially like, again, with being able to actually go out there and do it. Um, mm. and, and that's really what makes the difference is the fact that, as you said, once you make that decision, what you're excited about, you will just show up and do the thing that you do. And again, this goes back to our point about outsourcing. Don't get bogged down in the small things that really kind of drain mm-hmm. that energy from you. And of course limit your time away from flow so see guys all of this kind of all mixes together again and it's amazing so you mm-hmm. need to uh listen back to it um one of my other favorite questions i really love asking on the show and i specifically want to uh, when i was thinking about questions to ask you this one really came up for me it was any time that you've ever like had life knock you down like really knock you down what was it that helped you get back up and keep you consistently kind of feeling okay and like not letting life basically to put it nicely, sweep your feet underneath you and basically leave you on your back. Yeah. So I think perspective always helps. Um, you know, we, we see the world through our own eyes. So we always think our problems, our issues, are, you know, way bigger than what they are. Um, you know, I, I like to go out to, to the beach and just, look out over the water and that makes me feel insignificant or look out the stars and that makes me feel insignificant. Um, but I mean, to, to get in on a little bit of personal stuff, I mean, I am the son of, you know, migrant Eastern European, um, factory workers, you know, they moved out here from the Republic of Macedonia back in 1971 when it was still part of Yugoslavia, a communist country, they had absolutely nothing. They had no English, they had no money, they had no education. They just worked really hard in the factories to provide for myself and my sister. Um, so when my life isn't going that great, whether it's business or whether it's personal relationship or something, yes, I want to feel that. I want to feel the pain because pain is your teacher. It forces you to make some changes, but I'm not going to hold on to it for too long. It's like that old adage whereby if you put your hand on a hot stove, yes, you will feel the pain, but that pain's going to prompt you to remove it. If you keep your hand there, it's going to burn right through, and that's probably not very smart. Um, but also, I mean, I had a, a brother who, you know, unfortunately was taken away from the family at the age of 13 because he passed away of leukemia. Now, mm-hmm. he used to, um, he passed away a month before I was born, but he used to sit outside on his, uh, on the, um, you know, veranda of our home, growing up and he used to look out at the stars and say things like, one day I'm going to do something really big that no one's done before. And unfortunately he could never do that. Now, if I reflect on the struggles that my parents had to endure and the fact that my brother never got the opportunity, but now I have that opportunity. Yes, I'm going to feel pain. Yes, I'm going to go through inevitable hardship and setbacks in life. But when I reflect on that, I think, okay, okay, Steve, it's time to just move forward and and, you know, try and actualize some of the things that your brother wanted, you know, only dreamed about and also make your parents proud because they worked hard not to have you, you know, give up on everything that you've worked hard on as well. So there's a lot that went into that. But I think perspective is a really big motivator when when you start to lose sight of what's important. Agreed. 
like agreed so very much on that. And um, my condolences, by the way. I know it was. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I assume it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but still, it's one of those things, though. It's always a it family is. thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that specifically because it, it really does give like a lot of color and credence to what we've been speaking about. Yeah, and I think it's important to just be vulnerable and for people to share things more. And you know, sometimes people are a bit they find sharing personal stories of that nature somewhat stigmatic or whatever. But I'm just like, well, this helps you better understand me as a human being. And I think if more people were open, we'd have better relationships, and we would have relationships with the actual person rather than just the 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 social mask they're wearing on a day to day basis when they leave the house. Agreed. Um, it's something I found very very much. Uh, has worked for me. I've lost a lot of people. Um, I actually lost a couple of friends as I started to develop more into who I was. And I thought for a while that maybe my self-development is going the wrong way and bringing out the worst of me. Only to mm -hmm. be reminded very, very soberingly by a very good friend of mine. And they were like, well, realistically, were they really your friend to begin with? Or were they friends with the, with the thing that they saw? Mm -hmm. Like the mask that you were wearing. If they were friends with the mask you were wearing, then they weren't really your friend. When you took exactly. off that mask and started becoming truly to who you were, you know, warts and all, guess what? That's when the real people showed up, when that's when the real people stayed. And yeah. the people that weren't right for you then, they're there for a reason, they're there for a season, or there for a lifetime. They were clearly there for a season, and you just got to say goodbye to them, thank them for what you learned and what you picked up, then let the new people come in. And it's really helped me understand um, the power of vulnerability. Like, it's it's not... Some yes, there are some people out there, don't get me wrong, that will try and use this as a way to make themselves more affluent in any way they can. But the truth is, mm. you can see through that very quickly. It's just our internal humane BS meter will find it. Um, <laughs> but if you find someone authentic, you'll just, you'll just love it. And one of my, and just as a last point on this, one of the things I did to experiment, not experiment, one of the things I really felt was on uh, Friday. I was in a really happy, like grateful place. And again, excited about just like, ooh, what if I move and all this, that, the other. So really happy and excited. And I just wrote on Facebook, I just want to tell you guys that I love you. Mm. Nothing else. It was something to that effect. It was just basically telling everyone, I was like, I love you. Um, the amount of people that wrote back or sent me private messages going, I love you too, man. I hope you're well. And all that, the other. And I was like, this is really nice. Like, So many people, if they're just open to that vulnerability... Yeah. As you said, communication opens up more and people kind of find forgiveness with each other, which is lovely. Yeah, 100%. And I think, I mean, I get it. I think a lot of our behaviors go back to, you know, evolution and people are scared of acting out or behaving in a way that doesn't align with what society's norms and uh, conventions are. And, and therefore, we're fearful of being ostracized from the tribe and things like that, which is why people play these games and wear these masks. But you know, I've only had positive experiences by taking that mask off and being more open. Um, and like you said, it's going to attract you to people who, or it's going to attract people to you who really like or resonate or connect with the real you, not just the mask you're wearing. So I think that was very well put. Yeah, oh, thank you. It's something that I actually found that really helps out. Now, very quickly, um, what would be one thing that you tell everyone here? to go do besides what, listening to the show again because we gave you guys <laughs> so many keys you need to go listen again um but what would be like the one thing you'd advise everyone to like hey guys go go just go do this today okay um 
I'd say just go and do something, anything that scares you. <laughs> you know, I, I find that in life, the things that I find the most fulfilling are those things that scare me the most. So one thing I got into um, last year, uh, for example, was open mic nights, open mic comedy nights. I'd never done any stand-up in my entire life, but I did an online masterclass with Steve Martin, and I thought, okay, well, let's let's hit the circuit. And you know, I've done keynotes in front of 500 people where I talk about entrepreneurship, innovation, things like that. I'm super comfortable up there, but put me in like a back alley bar in front of 20 people for five minutes, all of them uh, sitting there waiting for me to make them laugh. I think it goes back to that um, being ostracized from the tribe thing. It is so confronting, but um, after you're done, regardless of whether or not you got any laughs, and I got a few, um, you just feel great. You feel amazing. So whatever it is, do that thing today that maybe you've been putting off, something that you know you should do, something that you know that once you're done, it'll be ex- you, you'll feel good, you'll feel fulfilled, but for whatever reason, you keep putting it off because something about it just makes you tense up a little bit. Just go and do that thing today. Um, that, that's what I would recommend. That's excellent. And guys, I would back that as well. It's one of the best things you can do. And um, you guys are like my audience knows this and I'll share that story with them again at some point, but definitely guys go do something that scares you and also go check out steve uh i I did say that right again glaveski right that's perfect excellent cool i always have to double check because in my mind i'm like wait did i say it right or did i mispronounce it i love (laughs) it when your brain does that sometimes it has that one moment of panic um but guys go check out steve thanks again steve for actually being here and taking the time today um and go check out his book uh employee to entrepreneur Thanks, Adol. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, just on that book, people can check that out at employee2entrepreneur.io um, where they can download a free bonus bundle that covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, like productivity, um, sales, marketing, and so on. So check that out. That would be awesome, guys. Go check it out. Links will be in the description as always. And I'll see you next week on the next episode. Take care, guys. Bye.